I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, and a warm welcome to everyone, everywhere. I'm Deborah Levy, and we are here to launch Lauren Elkin's incredibly enjoyable and clever book, number 9192, Notes on a Parisian Commute, published by the small but mighty and beautifully named independent literary press, Les Fugitives publishers of contemporary French writing in translation. In fact, they had to send me um, an extra copy of, of Lauren's book because my house guests made off with it. It's that sort of size, it sort of, it sort of resembles a notebook. You can slip it into your uh, pocket or into your pocket. <laughs> and I had to actually message them to say that just because it was written on a bus, they couldn't transport it out of my uh, home and I needed it for professional purposes. Um, Lauren, their reply was they picked it up and they couldn't put it down. <laughs> That's amazing. Lauren Elkin is the acclaimed author of Flaneurs, Women Walk the City, which was a Radio 4 Book of the Week, a New York Times notable book, and a finalist for the Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay, and the Art of Lipo, an attempt to exhaust a movement with Veronica Esposito. She is also an award-winning translator, most recently of Simone de Beauvoir's previously unpublished novel, The Inseparables, published by Vintage Classics recently. And then on a personal, personal note, I have to say that I look forward to everything Lauren writes for many reasons, but most of all, because I'm interested in what she notices. At its most simple and basic, I believe that is what all writing in any genre is about. Lashings of skill really helps, but being interested in how a writer thinks rather than how they plot a story is the difference between me wanting to pick up a book or not. I'm also grateful to Lauren for the critical apparatus she brings to her many reviews of the works of other writers, for her close reading of form, of the behavior of a stretch of writing, her attention to what might disturb or disrupt the calm surface of a text, the way she is not freaked out by ambiguity or enigma and works hard for her readers in a most hospitable way. She is light on her feet, such as page 43 of the book we are discussing today. And I'm going to read one line from it. I never remember from one year to another how dark it gets in the morning in winter. I guess we forget it like pain. So Lauren, welcome. Oh God, you made me tear up. Thank you so much. Um, that means so much to me, especially because I've heard you on, on several occasions say precisely that, that what you look for in a writer or, you know, hope for in your own work is, is 
that there will be some kind of sustained interest in what they're going to say next and following you know the line of their thought um, and I have strived for that I've striven for that in my own writing in this book that I've just finished the the draft of and in my revising of, of this book slight though it was it was really to make sure that everything was very tight in a way that Deborah Levy would find compelling oh my god um, well you know um, it is I, I really hear your voice in this book it's, yeah. such, it's such, and that is such um is such a pleasure so maybe um tell us um how you began this book the task you set yourself uh when you began your commute your work on buses mm -hmm. 91 and 92 between 2014 and 2015 in paris yeah um well it started really naturally because um i am a just um I don't know what's the word. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous, and it's hard to make the transition from home life to Zoom life. Um, I guess in general, but you know, especially when you have a, a, a small child in the house. So, just before we got started, uh, as I just told you, um, Julian spilled a bowl of soup on my feet. Um, so I'm I'm speaking to you with soup in my shoes. So it's making. <laughs> incapable of remembering words. Anyway, um, I really am a compulsive journal keeper. And when I am too busy to take out my moleskin notebook, or moleskine, as I was recently corrected, you are supposed to pronounce it à l'italien, uh, um, I will just take out my phone, um, which, as is the case for so many of us, is never far from my hand, um, and open up the, the notes app and just jot down something that has occurred to me, something I've noticed, something I want to think about, or something that I can think about right there and then. So this book really was born out of that compulsion to reach for something to write with and just jot down what I was seeing or thinking. Or even, you know, I mean, the, the something that I think writers do, I do it, and I think other people do it too, is sometimes you're just kind of making up sentences in your head, like, you know, turning the mm -hmm. world into sentences, just because that's, you've got a muscle that does that, and it's, it's working even when you're not sitting in front of your computer. So it'd often be, you know, like, oh, I, I just, I'm, I can't stop writing. I have this like graphomania. I've got to get the words out somewhere. So, so you, yeah, that's, that's how it began. Writing it on, on your, on your phone. You're writing yeah. it in notes. I had a little go yeah. actually uh, at, yeah. at writing notes. Just, uh, just you know, inspired by yourself. It's quite hard. Uh -huh. um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, and you're on the ninety-one, and you're on the ninety. You're on your bus, and you 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 write that instead of using your phone to escape from the world, you're mm -hmm. going to to record the world. Yeah, 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 and exactly. What, so so what happened when you were in mid sentence, and it was your stop, and and um, mm -hmm. and all of that? Yeah, I'd have to get off and and finish my sentence. You know right after I'd gotten off the bus, find a little place to tuck myself away and, and finish what I was saying. And were you tempted when you transcribed it later to add things and to, to edit it? Yeah, that was not part of the game. Yeah, because in yeah. the very beginning, I didn't know that it was a game or anything. I was just, you know, compiling all these notes on my phone. And soon it was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do every morning. Um, I actually have a friend from a long time ago in Paris, Jennifer Dick, if she's out there tonight she's a wonderful um, American poet who lives in France um, and she used to tell me that when she got to the university where she taught in the morning she'd get there early before the students arrived she'd just sit at her desk and journal a little bit like just to kind of clear the cobwebs and focus mm -hmm. herself so I think I wasn't thinking specifically of, of Jen's journaling practice but now that I'm talking about it, it, it it comes to me that I think that was you know on some level in my mind I was thinking well I'm going to teach I'm going to clear out the cobwebs um, so yeah, it was in the beginning just this kind of cobweb clearing exercise and this compulsive activity. But I think after a while, probably after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, and I started thinking like, oh God, things are actually happening now. Um, maybe I should be like doing this with a little, a little bit more care. Then I think I started taking more care in terms of the co compositional strategy. But yeah, it was mm. only about a year or so later that I started putting it together and thinking like, maybe this could be a book. I don't know. 
and I wouldn't let myself like change anything or add anything or fix anything. There were like some typos or maybe some turns of phrase that were slightly unfortunate, but mostly it's it's as it was. Restrictions suited you? Suited your thoughts? The the motion of the bus and 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 all of that. Um, I think that. Yeah, that's very generative for, for me personally, I think for other people too, obviously for, you know, the ULIPO. Yeah, absolutely. We'll come, we'll come to that. How would you yeah. read an extract? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll read for maybe six or seven minutes. Is that, is that enough oh. or is that too much? Is that okay? Okay, because I can, I can scale back if it's too much. So I'll begin with the first entry, which is from the 22nd of September, 2014, uh, Monday morning. Too early, it's too early. I hate morning classes. I should not teach them. After a quick dribble from the Nespresso machine, I'm still not quite myself. I've got a seat on the inside next to the window. I lean my head against it and study anything with words printed on it. The map of the 91 bus route as it crawls along the Boulevard Montparnasse. A poster announcing an upcoming strike and consequent bus diversion. Encouragements, not threats, to validate your tickets. I look around at my fellow passengers, They seem calm in the knowledge that they have validated their tickets as they stare at the screens of their phones, little wells of blue glowing in the thick dark of morning, tapping and swiping, tapping and swiping. A sign published by the RATP gives advice. Your telephone is precious. It may be envied. We recommend vigilance when using it in public. I look down at my own phone. It is precious. It was expensive. I will take their advice. I will be vigilant when using it. I will use it to carry out a public transport vigil and use my phone to take in the world around me, to notice all the things I would miss if I were using it the way I have been, the way they all are. I'll use the phone to look around me rather than down at its screen. Instead of taking pictures that wind up in someone else's morning feed, I'll use the phone to see the world myself. Exercise is not in style, but in vigilance. I type as fast as I can and sort out the autocorrect later. That afternoon. On the Boulevard du Montparnasse is a store called L'Espace Tabac, Tobacco Space. We go past it every day on the bus. L'Espace Tabac in the morning, L'Espace Tabac in the afternoon. L'Espace Tabac going one way, L'Espace Tabac the other. I remember when Paris was all tobacco space. Now it's contracted to this one store. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a man who seems to be petting an invisible animal as if he were miming the animal being there, defining the shape of it in the air with his caressing hand. I look at him directly, and it's his suede ankle boot he's touching, running his hand over the silken piles. October 9th, 2014, Thursday morning. Everyone's up and out already, and I join them this morning. The guy in the chair upholstery shop is there with the chairs. The guy in the caterers is there receiving delivery. I walk past a man entering a porte cochere who drops his cigarette butt as I walk by, and the smell of the tobacco wafts up to me, and for a moment mingles with the cold morning air, and it's like a proof of life. You don't want to get a lungful of it, just a whiff of someone else's smoke as the spark goes out. I'm glad all these people are out here doing what they're doing, and my bus comes, and I perch on a backwards-facing seat. Really annoyed by people who sit on the outside seat, leaving the inside one empty. Unless you have a physical inability to slide over, slide the hell over, even if you're getting off soon, the person who sits on the outside will understand. It is their responsibility to understand and to get up for you, just as it is your responsibility to move over for them. Bus ethics people, give it a try. That afternoon. There's a scruffy guy lounging over two seats who is clearly not interested in sharing, so I sit somewhere else. Then an elderly man gets on and says, excuse me, may I sit here, please? And the young scruffy guy gets up and mutters, yes, oui, putain. By the door, as I wait for my stop, a man in a hat looks out the window and says, Uzi. Monday afternoon, October 27th. Reading the years, and this quote is good for that Zadie article I have to write. The omnibus in which she had come, with its silent passengers looking cadaverous in the blue light, had already vanished. Wolf is usually so humanizing to the people on public transport, but this seems like she's been reading The Wasteland. I had not thought death had undone so many. 
Zadie is much more human about the people on the bus, much more Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, all novels start with an old lady in the carriage opposite. Something's jiggling my arm. Jiggle, 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 jiggle. I look down. It's the child in the seat next to me, tapping away at a little black, sorry, little red blackberry. I assume it's a game he's playing. I can't really tell. The sunlight makes a glare on the screen. How old is he? Not more than nine? Thursday, October 30th. The bus is on diversion and all hell is breaking loose. But, but where's he going? What's he doing? What's going on? The fuck is he doing? The foment bills and bills and I think they might rush the driver in his seat up there so he agrees to stop in unexpected places on this unexpected route. But he can't stop just anywhere. He has to stop somewhere safe. This doesn't matter to the woman who wants to get off right now, right here, and not a little ways down, and for whom it is becoming increasingly urgent to get off right away, no, right away. Can I get off here, or here, or here? Monsieur, il faut que je descende, la, 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 la! Monday morning, November 3rd. Poetics of the city as viewed. The only time you're at this height, not as high as a first floor, but higher than the ground. You never move quickly, it's not like a car. There's no weaving, no darting, just a progression of stops and starts. You're always going forward, the 91, then the 92, making its way along the long boulevards, which curve north or south, but never turn. The only time you see the city at this pace. You think you have a moment to take a quick picture of a caryatid, poster, yourself reflected in the windows of the building. But as soon as you've tapped and swiped over to the camera setting on the phone, the bus is moving again. Thursday afternoon, November 20th. Taught Perec today, an attempt at exhausting a place in Paris. The kids were into it. They liked thinking about how the place we look at the world from shapes the way we see it. At first, they're bogged down by all the details. They've never read anything like it. They're used to stories with plots and characters or textbooks. They haven't encountered writing like this, writing of the everyday, writing without an argument, writing that suggests, that counts, that tracks. Tomorrow I'll take them to Saint-Sulpice and they'll do the exercise for themselves and they'll see how tough it is to notice everything and how freeing it is to try. The one thing they notice are the buses. Perec tracked all the buses that went through the Place Saint-Sulpice those few days in 1974. I never noticed the buses so much, said one student, but now everywhere I go in the city I'm keeping track of them. Another was like, but why does he do this? I don't understand. Who does this? Who reads this? I didn't know how to answer her. That book strikes me as less a means of writing for someone and more a means of making sense of the world. Like, things are out of control. Count the buses, slow down, pattern the world. I think that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, to listen to, to be with you Aww, on, on, that, on that bus. Um, in Paris, in the, in the present tense. Um, so what was freeing about the restriction of writing on notes on the phone? Because it seemed to, see, I get, I get the feeling that it was. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, it's that like Olympian idea that in, in constraint comes freedom. Like if you place a rubber band around what you're trying to do, then you find it actually feels really good to stretch your muscles by stretching the rubber band um, and really kind of exhausting or, or, or tunneling out or hollowing out whatever it is that you've given yourself to write about. So I think, you know, the Ulipo often, I think, visits creative writing classrooms and I, in my own creative writing classroom, have often used Ulipian exercises because I think there's something, you know, kind of terrifying about the blank page, like, what am I going to write about if I could write about anything? Um, but if you give yourself a place to start from, even if it's just an exercise, a way of clearing the cobwebs, or just a way of keeping yourself, you know, entertained on the bus in a more, you know, educational manner than just looking at Twitter, you know, you might you might come up with something that you might not have thought of otherwise if you'd been writing about anything, you know. Mm. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course it does. I'm sort of keeping away from Ulipo and, and, and Parrot, but I think maybe I'm going to have to uh, walk Parrot in now to this conversation <laughs> because he is the ghost um, mm -hmm. in the book. And, um, you know, and you, you, you write a lot about him and, um, and teach him. 
and obviously I've also quoted Parekh uh, in uh, quite extensively in my in my own work that idea of patterning the world to somehow for it, for it not to be too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we're really talking about um, the the everyday life. We're talking about um, the movement of everyday life. Uh, so, so everyday life and movement that that's very important to this book because it's mm -hmm. not it's not static, and that's what um, I was really trying to get at when I was talking about the, what what did the restriction give you on the phone. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, you know it would be really interesting to try and write walking down the road on that, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure you did um, on the phone, and then you make this really. Um, interesting point because later on in the book you're on the metro and this is after the Charlie Hebdo attack and you, you, you're on the metro and you notice um, the change in your mood the change in your own uh, vulnerability um, and, 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 and you're fearful and you notice that people on the metro read paper and people on buses read their phones. They're on their phones. I thought we could talk about that. Is is that because um, you know you go down into the underworld on on the metro and you need to sort of you you want other worlds apart from that mm -hmm. one? And then on a bus, you actually write in there, jammed it jammed together in the physical world, and you can look out at things um, through the window. Yeah, I think that that's something that I, I haven't come to any kind of conclusion about. What is the difference between the metro and the bus? And why are people reading books on the metro and their phones on the bus? I mean, it may be as simple as you can't get very good cell reception. I mean, you get some better than in London. Or people get car sick on the bus when they try to read a book. But I'm not sure that's it. I think what you're saying is is a possible um, explanation that you can lose yourself in a book in a way you can't in your phone. I mean, you can kind of distract yourself with your phone, but it's not the same kind of world building um, exercise. And so maybe in down under there, we have to forget that we're like in a in a like tin can, basically hurtling through the city underground. So we have to you know hide in the book. Um, I was talking to a friend today who who had just had a baby, and he was saying that in the metro there's like all these people like kind of leering and looking at them and the baby, whereas on the bus they feel much more relaxed and people are much cooler about there being a baby in a stroller. So I think there's just different, yeah, different moods, different ways of being on the metro or the bus. Yeah. So I think the difference between you and Perek is that Perek. Um, holds the reader at a distance, keeps things um, controlled, patterned, mm -hmm. there's a system, there are endless lists. He's, he's also endlessly touching. I mean, you know, when, when I read Perak, I'm always moved. Um, mm -hmm. I've never really mm -hmm. understood why. Uh, but you do something else. In fact, I think you're better than Perak. Um, oh. you, you, yeah, I think I, I, I'm just more interested in, in um, that. That's why, although I know that you feel very indebted to, to Perec, mm -hmm. and, and in a way we are, um, I think that you, um, you bring the reader in. You do not push the reader away, um, and nor, nor are you in our face. Um, so I think that's a that's a skill that's 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 hard to do. My favorite uh, observation on the bus is the guy who's looking out of the window and sort of randomly just says Sarkozy. <laughs> yep. I really like Bizarre. That. I, I really like that it that, that you don't explain it and that it's that it just ends there. Um, Who could explain Bauer. it? I mean, how do you explain Sarkozy? <laughs> Sarkozy. Well, you know, in another sort of writing, maybe you would have to say you might you might have to give that some. You might have to work that observation mm -hmm. differently. But I mm -hmm. <laughs> just ran through of buses, uh, Sarkozy, and, and <laughs> um, 
that's a very good tip, really. Uh, David Bowie, um, I, I'll never forget reading this interview where he said when he was stuck writing lyrics uh, and he couldn't, he couldn't write the last line, uh, the last card in his pocket was to write something with comple something completely overwhelmingly illogical. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, um, that moment where the man just looks out of the window and says Sarkozy seems somehow to be some somewhere there, and also intuitively just very understandable when we think we're mm -hmm. thinking about something and just um, say one word of the thought. Um, okay, so you notice what people are wearing or doing and how how people occupy public space and why that might be political. So the echoes of, of planeurs there. Um, do you feel that um, if you were to go back, if you were going to do this again, would there be a different, would you, would you approach that? Is there anything you've learned, in other words, mm. from, from this experiment that you would do differently in um, in another book. Ah, uh, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, there are there are moments in the book in terms of my responses to the world that are completely different since I became a mother. For instance, there is that yeah. one scene where I see this woman with her her three kids, three kids, um, and I'm like all judgy. She's like one of them has a cut on his nose, and I'm like dude, cut your kid's fingernails. They're, they're slicing themselves up. And now I have this toddler who has very strong ideas about when I get to cut his nails. And it's not ever is the answer. Um, so he walks around with these like fingernails like a Long Island hairdresser. Um, and he gashes all over his face. So, you know, who am I to judge? I've really, I've really learned um, quite a bit about um, yeah, getting getting that kind of judgy thing in check, and I think that speaking of Long Island, you know, this is like you can take the girl out of out of Long Island, but you can't take that that reflexive judgment of how other people are being, you know, out of the girl. I do try I, try to be mellow. I think that's what we do on on yeah. one sport. We're we're looking, we're judging. Um, yeah, exactly. And then just another influence is Annie Erno. Um, oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, in particular, you say exterior. Is it is it exteriors? Or, uh, exteriors. Yeah. Exteriors. Such an amazing book. Um, recently um, uh, published by in Britain by Fitzcarraldo. Mm -hmm. um, I think written in 1985. And Fitzcarraldo have done everything to bring mm -hmm. a new generation of readers to Annie. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So in exteriors, I, um, if, if, if I remember it correctly, Ano has moved to a new town 40 kilometers outside of Paris, and she starts mm -hmm. to keep a journal. Um, mm -hmm. no. And again, it's, it's what she notices. And, and, and the beginning is uh, graffiti she's noticed. Mm -hmm. And the first uh, line is insanity. The mm -hmm. second line is somebody loves somebody. And then um, the third one that made me laugh, um, I, I don't know if this is word perfect, but um, if your children are communists, they will be happy. And, yeah. um, and, and off she goes. And then she sort of brings back a, um, a guy who works in Frampery in a supermarket. Um, she suddenly, she sees him outside the supermarket with, um, his partner, and they're choosing a, a camembert and as a president, and he's making a joke about shall we take the president home? And he's got like punk pains. And uh, this is only this is only a paragraph, but I've just never forgotten um, that kind of journal making, you know, where where you mm -hmm. are really making a um, history, uh, which he goes on to do obviously in in, in the years. Um, no finer writer. I mean, tell tell me about Arnaud's influence on on you and and conceptually on mm. your on 
on your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that this book would not exist without um, exteriors, which in French is called Journal du Dehors, like Journal mm -hmm. of Outside, Journal of Outside Places. Um, and I, yeah, I directly cribbed her idea. I took her idea. And I'm very much hoping that it will come out in French so I can send it to her because I think her English is only so-so. Um, and I love and revere her so much. And, and I just want to show her what I made. Like she's my, my literary mom or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, well, yeah, she's, she's, she's wonderful. I mean, I, so I, I've written about her a little bit. I, I first found Simple Passion in the FNAC in like 1999. And it is a skinny little book written in really easy French. And I was like, oh, cool, I'll buy this. You know, I was just learning French at that time. I think it was the first book that I ever read in French that wasn't for school. Um, and just was taken aback by how directly she tells the story of this affair that she had with this man. And for her, the way that she valorized the first person um, from a woman's perspective about a guy and just she's like admitting to sitting home and waiting for him to call. And it's not pathetic. It's not to be laughed at, but it's also not to be taken too seriously either. It really just strikes that perfect note of like, I'm writing very directly and sparely about my life and and by doing that i am validating women's voices in general so i was just very struck you know and obviously at that time in my life i was rather preoccupied with my own love affairs um which you know at 20 years old were very different than the one that she was describing which i think she was you know 40 or in her 40s when she wrote that book so yeah that was that was really the beginning of me reading annie arnaud and just really admiring the way she's not um bothered about trying to show off what she knows what she's read what she's learned you know who she can reference there's no digressions um it is a lot like edouard louis writing I, th I think he's he's another young writer who's writing in any on wake but every time i read him i'm very I, I feel very struck by and admiring of his ability to get out of his own way um mm -hmm. but yeah i think to come to come back to this book there's this real sense that um of what that what she takes in in that book, what she allows to enter the book, the way that you were just describing that scene in the supermarket, she's really investing places like the supermarket or the RER or a parking lot of the supermarket with presence and meaning. Like these aren't just, you know, as I wrote about in Flaneuse, just places to kind of get through on your way to living your life somewhere else. Um, there, I, I've written another essay about her that I think is going to be out in Literary Hub soon. Um, saying that she's kind of doing the opposite of what Marc Auger called the non-lieu, like the non-space. She's saying, no, these are not non-spaces. They are real spaces with real people living their lives in them. And we have to kind of give give credit to that and, and honor that. Definitely. Um, I think I should say at this point to the uh, audience that uh, we're going to be taking questions. So please um, do feel free. Uh, to ask Lauren um, the questions in the Q&A, which is going to be in about 10 minutes. I think Claire is going to filter those through. Um, and um, uh, let's just, maybe we could just have a short second reading, Lauren. Yeah, a little sure. further. Yeah, a little bit further on in the book, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll do a little bit. So, um, Another, well, well, one of the two kind of plot moments in the book are the Charlie Hebdo attacks, and then yeah. I got pregnant back then. So this yeah. is a little bit about being pregnant back then. This is March 20th, uh, 2015, Friday afternoon. Suddenly, the world is full of strollers. I pay attention to the way the parents angle them up and into the buses. I take note of who goes where, how they slide into their parking spaces, how the parents hit the brake to immobilize them, how they keep their kids quiet, how they stop them licking the walls of the bus. There are so many things to know now. Um, March 24th, Tuesday morning. So far, not a single man has given up his seat for me, my friend Jay said when she came to town six months pregnant. The only people who stand for me are women. That afternoon, I'm exhausted from growing a human and the buses are slow. Couldn't wait 14 minutes for the next 92, so I jumped in a cab. Follows my bus all the way home. I get off at my stop. Wednesday afternoon, March 25th. Sometimes I get the bus for one stop now. I lean against the railing in the handicapped area and contemplate this new reality. 
Everything smells so intense, like it's all been sprayed with a perfume of its own scent, like the smells are in high definition, if high definition could make you want to hurl. Thursday morning, March 26th. Paris sent la merde ce matin, pas vrai? Thursday night, March 26th. There are a lot of people on the tram. Friday afternoon, March 27th. The bus is on diversion. The driver breaks the fourth wall to tell us. Then so do the passengers, consulting and commiserating with each other, whereas 10 minutes ago they pretended they were invisible, all of us departing from convention. March 31st, Tuesday morning. You never see people begging on the bus. Taking the bus, you only see a certain kind of person. There's some women who just to look at them makes you think they smell like cigarettes and heavy secret smells and would get eye makeup all over your pillow. These women I often see on the bus. That afternoon, the bus is full and I have to stand. A little girl is standing next to me, her head at my hip. She looks up at me, then begins to play with the frayed place on the thigh of my jeans. She's singing a little song that goes, hello, hello, then I can't understand the rest of the words. She looks up to see if I mind her playing with the loose threads on my jeans. Hello, I say brightly in English and scare her. Stop there. Yeah, because um, the book then changes its mood mm -hmm. and uh, becomes, um, we, 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 we go somewhere else because we, you become pregnant. We have a pregnant body in public space and on the bar and then you lose that pregnancy and mm. um, and you write about that so magnificently um you you tell us that an ectopic pre ectopic pregnancy or ectopic means mm. to be at the place and mm. you follow you thought fo you follow that uh thought with uh, a red bag a man is a, a man in a mm -hmm. very suit is is um, wearing a red tote bag mm -hmm. and uh, you feel that this is somewhat out of place mm -hmm. um so so, so you, you you chase that and, and we we begin to feel that this journey becomes um really much more epic of, of over time with um a, a pregnancy the loss of a pregnancy and then and then charlie abdo and um, you, you then write this, Lauren, the hardest thing to make sense of was how in an instant the everyday can become an event. Can you elaborate? Um, yeah, I think, you know, when I wrote that, I think that's from the introduction. Um, that was like a good year after all of this had happened. Um, and the attacks of November 13th, 2015 at the Bataclan and around the Canal Saint-Martin had, had happened by then. So, uh, you know, it really hammered home. <laughs> that last set of events really hammered home this feeling that I'd had for quite some time, which probably began on September 11th when I was in New York and, you know, watched the towers fall with my own eyes. That, you know, what seems like an everyday day when you get out of bed and go to work um, it can become an event with a capital E. And you just never know when it's going to happen. And I started having panic attacks um, on on buses and on metros after this after the November 13th attacks because um, I just I realized it wasn't that I was afraid. It was on the metro specifically. I wasn't afraid of like being on the metro necessarily. I was afraid of where we might be going, what might be at the end of the the track. Um, and so yeah, it it. Uh, um, I've almost lost the thread of what I was trying to say because it's, it's so like bouleversant. Your, your diary entries become much longer. Yeah. Um, they need to. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Well, we've got some questions coming in, and um, let's go for some of them here. Ah, this is anonymous. You managed to write a book while being on the bus. Could the bus be the new room of one's own? (laughs) (laughs) A room you're sharing with a bunch of other people who maybe are writing books. Yeah, I think in in this day and age when you a girl's got to, you know, you don't have your 500 a year from whatever rich relative died and left it to you. You've got to go and make your living teaching or being a barista or doing whatever you got to do. Definitely. Okay. Um, Another anonymous. Was your phone just a receptacle for your observations or or did the act of noting everything down make you more observant over time? I hope so, yeah. I mean, I think that this book very much grew out of Planeuse because I had just finished writing that when I started keeping this journal. And you know, like, I don't know, it's like from the old cartoons, like Bugs Bunny, he's running, 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 he runs, maybe it's, no, Roadrunner, running, 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 he runs right off the cliff and then he's like, oh, ah, and he falls. So I feel like this book is that part off after I ran off the cliff <laughs> and, you know, the falling, whatever, I, I was okay. I dusted myself off, but you know, it's like, I was so used to running and noticing and looking at the world around me and getting it all down in print um, that when I, you know, I stopped doing Flanus, but then I just kept doing the thing that Flanus had, had, had taught me to do. Mm. And I mean, we also have to say that you are Dr. Elkin, you're a trained critical mm. thinker. So, you know, ah. I think, I think that you are exceptionally good, Lauren, at that um, at that kind of note taking. Um, runner analogies. Absolutely. And here's 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 Fiona Melrose. Hi, Fiona. Um, she asks. Uh, Fiona asks. Thank you for your books. I'm interested in how Lauren thinks this book would be different in form, say, in London or Berlin, another large city. What does Paris bring to this exercise form and how and how you experienced it? I think that's a wonderful question. Thank you, Fiona. Um, I, you know, I ask myself this question all the time. Um, I think, you know, I'm thinking particularly of of a really wonderful academic book by Michael Sheringham called, um, I think it's just called Everyday Life. But it's about how at mid-century and a little bit after in Paris, all of these writers started getting really interested in what was going on in everyday life. You know, Michel de Certeau, Georges Ferrec, Annie Arnaud, Jacques Tati, there's like no end of creative people being inspired by, you know, life on the streets of Paris. And arguably that has a very long history, which I won't get into now. Um, But there's something about Paris that makes you look outward and look at other people. And I really, I mean, you know, I said this recently in an essay that it's a city where the the cafe tables have the chairs positioned, not so that you can look at the person you're with, but so you can look out at the people walking by. Um, And I really, I really am, am, I don't know, maybe I was trained by living in Paris to start to look around me. Maybe that's something that I wouldn't have done if I'd stayed in New York. Um, Certainly something that I learned from reading Perec and from reading Ernaud. Um, but yeah, I haven't lived in Berlin and I'm only just moving to London, so I don't really know how it would be different elsewhere. But all I can say is that in Paris, I feel kind of cradled by the city and the people who live there to and, and given permission to look at them. They're my people, but they're not my people. I've lived there for 20 years, but I'm not you know, from there. So I, I'm close enough to feel like I deserve to be aggravated by them. <laughs> 
and like I've earned the fact to to love the place and to you know to adore the place I've paid my dues so mm. I don't know there's something for me personally about that closeness but distance that is very productive as a writer yeah and early and early on in the book you, you you're writing about applying for French citizenship and asking yeah. yourself why why mm -hmm. why you want it um, and so all these kind of everyday questions that are much bigger questions about authorship and identity and and, and all of that seem to be that the, the the smallness of the form of, of the actual iPhone I, I mean mm -hmm. the of the iPhone mm -hmm. um, what fascinates me is it's just the, the themes are so epic and in, in that small physical space but are intellectual mm -hmm. and um, socially so it's so big We've got another question here. Um, I'm interested in the way that having a pattern to write in or through helped you to understand, process the events that happened. Oh, sorry, helped you to understand, yeah. process the events that happened, if it did. I really think it, yeah, I think there's a direct correlation. Um, I mean, it's why people keep diaries, right? It's the, the impulse to write out what's happening to you. You know, it's it's kind of, I don't know, you know, if you could think back to childhood and the things you wrote down in your journal, it would either be like, um, had a sandwich today, mom took me to the store, or be like, I hate, I hate Kenny so much when he steals my pencils, you know, it's either like the banal or like the thing that really fires you up and gets you going. And there's something about the act of journaling from a very young age. I'm not quoting my own my own journals. Don't worry. Um, something about the act of journaling. It's like, I guess like the you know a, a written version of, of therapy, right? It's it's a form of kind of taking in what the world has given you and then spitting it back out again helps you, as you say, you know, process it in a very kind of mechanical matter manner. It's something I think that's very important just to not take things in and then hold them inside, but you know, we need to get them back out again in whatever form that takes. I was not going to therapy at this time, though maybe I should have been, but if I had been, maybe I wouldn't have written this book. <laughs> this is a great question from Sarah Duff. Um, this is probably a silly question, but how does nausea factor into this book? I get terrible motion sickness on buses and can't read anything on them. That said, I'm <laughs> reading this book although while sitting just still. not on the bus <laughs> hi sarah thank you so much for that um yeah nausea is is an issue when i got pregnant but it wasn't really before i don't know why i get terrible motion sickness as well but for some reason on the bus it's it's not a problem but um when i'm sitting backwards that's when i really that's yeah i think i might mention that a couple of times that i can't i can't really read or write when i'm sitting backwards yeah <laughs> okay, this is Alison Timmons. If Simone de Beauvoir had been on that bus with you, what do you think <laughs> you would make of modern Paris? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, what what would Simone de Beauvoir make of modern Paris? God, I think she'd she'd love it. She'd be thrilled. I mean, uh, she might be kind of skeptical of the like Americanization of, of Paris. I think that's something that you hear French people complain about a lot. Um, I think contemporary Paris is trying to be Brooklyn or something or, or you know, Hackney and it really needs to stop um, like enough with the new Paris already. So I think she'd probably be like, you know, what's with all the filament light bulbs and you know, why are there Metro tiles on all the walls? Um, but yeah, I think she'd be probably, you know, pleased at the energy and, and happy to be alive, um, however many years it is now after her, her death <laughs> or birth. She might be shocked that she can't sit in cafes for the entire day like and, and write as, yeah. as she did in, in her own era, you know. Exactly. That, um, or, or maybe she could, maybe she would still be given a, 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 a special room, you know. Cafe floor, and she could write there from uh, nine to six with an interruption of lunch with Sart, mm -hmm. um, who I think was given his own phone line 
um, back in the day <laughs> in Café Flore. Um, well. I, wonder, I wonder what she'd think of the clothes because she was really interested in clothes, as mm -hmm. as are we all and as as are you. I love your descriptions of clothes of what people are wearing um, mm -hmm. uh, on the on the bus. I like the tutu and the mm -hmm. the, the uh, fake lashes. Um, mm -hmm. I love your attention on the pleats of a coat and thinking, well, mm -hmm. they don't work. Let's find <laughs> um, another question. That's a great question about Simone de Beauvoir on the bus. I'm always, this is Emma, I'm always interested in the moral element of thinking about how we pay attention. Earlier, Lauren said, quote, it was more educational to take notes than scroll Twitter. How do you make sense of those questions in your own life? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I don't know that I, I myself personally think that it's more, you know, educational. I think I meant to say edifying, but, you know, flip of the tongue. Um, I don't know that I believe it's more edifying to write my silly little notes on my phone than to read Twitter. Like sometimes they're great, there's, you know, great stuff on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I think I was probably referencing a general perspective that one is wasting one's time on social media. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely think that that social media um, has this way of both provoking us and, and placating us at the same time. You know, the scroll is happening so quickly and you've got people who are like trying to get you to engage. They're like, you know, posting things like, you know, I just saw something today. Someone said, like, what's something you would say during sex? And of course, people are like, oh, I'm going to tell you right away what like witty thing I think it would be funny to say during sex. Or you have people with their ridiculous trolling attitudes. Or, you know, there's something about this sheer mountain of verbiage coming at you that just makes you kind of glaze over and just like look at it. And, and so I think that's what I was fighting against um, in writing this book and taking these mm -hmm. notes and, and, and what I said just before, I think we have to kind of do what we can when when we're awake enough and, and in the mood enough we have to do what we can to bestir ourselves to take note of the world around us and you know what people are doing and how they're living and how they're making meaning together um on a bus on the street in the supermarket um i think it's it's not just like edifying or, or educational but you know ethical to pay attention to things and to people and and i think it's the job of the writer to teach people how to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you also write so beautifully about um, what you consider to be the sound of the 21st century, which is tap, tap, tap on the phone. Mm -hmm. You've described yeah. it as the sound, it's sort of tap, tap, scroll, tap, tap, scroll. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if that is the sound of the 21st century. I don't know. Um, it's hard to hear. It is hard to hear, but there is a sort of, but yeah, but you do hear it. Mm -hmm. um, okay. What, this is Caroline Maguire. What makes a particular piece of your own writing become meaning, meaningful for you and makes it get beyond the editing process? <laughs> so, so how, how does it get through the editing process? You know, um, um, what makes it meaningful? I think I'm thinking in terms of what makes something meaningful to other people. Um, so, I have an ear out for what seems like self-pitying or like with a real kind of agenda that's not an interesting agenda. It's hard to even clarify what I mean by that. Um, sometimes a slightly uninteresting agenda can be edited to be a more interesting agenda. Um, but yeah, I think I came of age during the blogging years, you know, of the, the early noughties when everybody was just like vomiting forth prose left, right and center. I guess now people have newsletters, but I can't really, I don't have the time for newsletters. I think, you know, having a kid and kind of basically means you have to decide what you're going to read. And for me, newsletters are mostly, mostly out. And I would love to be able to read. But I think, you know, being of age during the 
time of blogging gave me a better eye for what was interesting in people's writing because you've got like vast amounts of prose and it kind of trained me to be an editor and look for like the good moments you know what was what was really like what what the zingers or something and so in this book I think there's a lot of like stuff that I might ordinarily leave out like that whole little complainy spiel that I included about um like slide the hell over you know that's the kind of thing that I would like bitch about to my partner or something like slide the hell over but it's not something I would necessarily think to include in a piece of writing um but I let it stand here because hopefully there's enough other interesting stuff that you know you can forgive me for it and maybe it's interesting because it's like you're on the bus with me and I'm complaining to you so you know there's definitely an element of like I've left stuff in that might be cringy that I might otherwise take out but you know it's kind of part of the experiment of the book just leave it in and, and see how it see how it feels and so when I was reading it just then it felt a bit like a monologue or something so maybe you know it's character building rather than like essayistic writing if that makes any sense I think it would be pretty odd to be on a bus and not have the, those thoughts slide the hell over don't <laughs> tread on my toes I mean you know uh fair dues um, I think I think also the thing about editing. I I, I don't know about you, Lauren, but after after a, a long stretch of writing, when you earn that edit, um, you know, because we we sort of edit all the time because we we mm -hmm. uh, speaking for myself, I'm writing on uh, a laptop, and uh, you lose count of how many drafts you do because you're kind of correcting things all the mm -hmm. time. But on the whole. Uh, if you do uh, a fairly long stretch of writing um, and a free writing, there is that moment, you know, when you're going to do an edit. And I find that um, I have all kinds of rituals for that edit. I make a, a small fee. I, um, I open the windows. It's like the moment that you're just going to somehow um, compose, you know, uh, this work and it's not just the the terrible stuff that goes it's also pretty good stuff that goes I um I have this uh sort of uh weirdly destructive thing whereas I don't actually save if there's a, if there's a paragraph that I like a lot but has completely derailed the work I don't put in off cuts I just delete it and I hope I do and I just sort of hope that's <laughs> That that somehow um, it will return to me um, <laughs> when it needs, you know, in the in the right place, <laughs> not this one. Oh, Here God. is um, Paul Tickle. Is the Paris bus, like its London equivalent, a more working class mode of transport than the tube or metro? Mm. Uh, only losers take the bus as oh paul your questions just disappeared from my screen here it's come back only loose losers take the bus as the fatima mansions song goes when you mention uh, the long island in you is that a class reference is that the question is it a class <laughs> reference okay um, hmm, interesting well first of all i'm american so no <laughs> it's not a class reference it's a regional reference um and there might be some encoded class reference when I said like a Long Island hairdresser's nails about my son's nails, but because it's a much gentler society in terms of class structure, or maybe we're fooling ourselves and it's just as bad as in the UK. Um, for me, I, I, that wasn't like a dig at a Long Island hairdresser. It's more just you know, an evocation of what their nails might look like. Um, but yeah, I think, and I, I sort of said this recently in an interview, someone asked me if I would do a Liverpool equivalent of this book because I've just been living mm -hmm. in Liverpool for a few years um, and I said really no I wouldn't because um, you know in in Paris it is a very like middle-class thing to take the bus everybody takes the bus lots of people from all different walks of life take the bus um, but in Liverpool it really is people who can't afford to drive um, who do I mean there are like people who only have one car and their partner has it for the day who are on the bus but um, mostly it's people who don't who don't drive who don't have cars or in you know some sort of state of disability or or I don't know you see some like very disturbed people on the bus in Liverpool um, and so yeah I think there is a real 
I don't know London buses all that well, but I think that there is a real difference in terms of who takes the bus. Um, and it was only in riding the bus in Liverpool that I began to understand what Margaret Thatcher said about how, you know, anyone over the age of 30 taking the bus can consider themselves a failure, which I think is possibly where that, that lyric that you're talking about, only yeah. losers take the bus, comes from. <laughs> Lauren, one final question for me, because uh, we're going to have to uh, close close the shop soon yeah thank you for um your amazing book thank you to the audience for for your for such interesting questions um this is a book to treasure and to read everywhere um and i wondered if you can play us out with uh, a short and final reading from number one Number 91, no, 92, Notes on a Parisian Commute. So I will read one last paragraph, but I just want to thank you, Deborah, for your extremely generous um, and wonderful and inspiring response to this book and for your words about my work. And a thank you to everyone who's come tonight and has listened and you know has bought the book and engaged with the book. It really, all of this means quite a lot to me. Um, I feel very, very emotional right now in a way that I don't usually um, in these sorts of things. So thank you very much. And thanks to the LRB for inviting us and for hosting. Um, so yeah, this is actually from the end of the introduction. So I will, I will just read this short paragraph and then we'll, we'll sign off and say goodbye. Over time, the event weaves into the everyday. People we see on the bus may have been at the Bataclan or know someone who was. The woman in the corner may have had a miscarriage last month. Other people are an immense mystery. We cannot right-click on them and download their history. We do not know where they have been or where they're going, but that they are going together while companionably ignoring one another seems of paramount importance. I believe this is called community. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.